0: Welcome home. It's all yours, sir. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you. Actually, I'd kind of hoped that you wouldn't stop doing that for a while, because that doesn't happen in my life anymore. <laughs> so I want to cherish the moment <clears throat> of being cheered for. Thank you. And uh, it is. It, it's a homecoming. It's a time of um, gathering again with the North Central family. And we are family. Uh, We are the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, and uh, even the grandparents. Uh, It's very possible. I'm the oldest person in the room, I'm 72. Is there anybody here 72 or more? Oh, okay. Well, you and I need to have our own uh, uh, elders' reception, so (laughs) that's great. But uh, it's the body of Christ, and we are family together. And uh, to be able to be back here in this uh, place, this is, uh, for me, this is the, uh, the many places for the offices and the boardrooms and the other meeting areas and athletics and music. This is, uh, this is uh, the place that I love the most. It's uh, where everything that uh, makes North Central what it is comes together and is uh, integrated, uh, where we bring the expertise of the classroom and we bring the issues of administration and finance and then the work of the Spirit, it is all integrated here. And so I love this place, I love this school, I love all of you that I know, and I love those that I don't know. How many of you have never seen me before? Raise your hand. Okay. Man, that's, I'd say that's about half, which how many have, but don't remember. Oh, okay. <clears throat> how many of you were here uh, two years ago when I left and President Hagen was inaugurated? Okay, quite about a third, maybe, quite a number there. How many of you were here in 1995 when I became president? Smaller group, smaller group. How many students were here in 1995 when I became president, and you're still here? Okay. That would be slow progress. <laughs> oh, this is wonderful. <clears throat> and um, thank you, President Hagan, for uh, making this opportunity uh, available to me and then to all of us for a moment of gathering and uh, in, a, in a sense, looking back at the past and uh, at the also looking forward into the future. My wife, Diane, uh, is not able to be with me. Uh, people have been asking us, how are you? And I've said a few times, well, that question falls within a bigger context of the fact that I'm 72 and she's 71. And I don't want to expect the, uh, explain the bigger picture to tell you how we are But uh, my wife has health issues and uh, knee replacement and arthritis and other things. And so a trip like this just is not possible for her. But uh, she sends her uh, love and her greetings to all of you. And uh, it's just kind of fun. Uh, Diane would sit down here uh, in in the front with me and we go to church together with our family. So she says hello and uh, sends her greetings when uh, when I retired two years ago, uh, people ask us, "So what are you going to do in retirement?" And I came up with something that is uh, both humorous and very very serious. I would tell people, "Well, Diane and I are going to see if we can be really good Christians when we're no longer getting paid to do it." <laughs> now the. Part of the seriousness of that is, frankly, that in, uh, when you have a position in public ministry, there's a good deal of pressure around you to, uh, to fly, fly right, you know, to, to shape up and fly right. That's not all bad. Now, it can be bad, but, you know, you need you got pressure around you. How are you going to act when the pressure isn't there? That's a real question. Uh, Hezekiah says, and the Spirit of the Lord left him so that God could know all that was in his heart. So what do you like in a group of Christians when people are watching, and what do you like when you're all by yourself and nobody's watching? Okay. So, and then what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, we have lived our lives in public ministry 50 years. Uh, Diana and I have been married 52 years. We've been in public ministry <laughs> for 50 of those years. That's a long time. And um, so the most relationships we had would be with people like you, wonderful, Christian, uh, sanctified, well, semi-sanctified, uh, spirit-filled, wonderful folks. But the, the world at large, uh, my brother, I have one brother, he was in sales in uh, heavy equipment. And he lived out his life uh, in the marketplace, uh, which is a very different place. And uh, so we've asked ourselves, how are we going to conduct ourselves, and what will we do uh, upon retirement? When I became president of North Central, I knew, God just showed me clearly, that it would be the last position that I would ever hold. I didn't know how long it would be, but somehow I just knew that... The time at North Central would be the last chapter of public ministry, and that has been the case. And uh, we are very comfortable with that. It does create certain dynamics of transition. We're in Washington now, where uh, actually the past, uh, president, pastor, Bishop, president. Uh, uh, Hagan has his roots out there in the Washington. And um, it's a wonderful place, but we're in a very, very different setting. Uh, we have a, a little place, a little farm, that is actually an operating farm. And yesterday, Diane mailed our uh, taxes for 2018 off. And in that packet of taxes, there was a form I'd never filled out before, but it was profit and loss from farming. So I am a farmer. <clears throat> and I raised livestock. And uh, last year, we had $2884 in income from the sale of livestock and $4,900 in losses from uh, (laughs) taking care of that livestock. (laughs) So so we're off to a good start. Like the farmer, somebody said to the farmer, what would you do if you won the lottery? He said, oh, I'd take that money and keep farming till it was all gone. And so, how many of you have a farm background? Any farm kids around here? So, but I have three Angus heifers that uh, we're raising for slaughter. So we didn't name them, and Scott and I have some history on this whole thing. We didn't name them. We named them number one, number two, and number three. <clears throat> and uh, so we're doing that. Uh, we have four goats, uh, boar, meat goats. Last summer we had 15, and uh, we sold off some goats, and that's where the revenue came from. have eight chickens. And um, we have three cats, two dogs, and uh, our son, our younger son of two, uh, Cameron, and his wife, Lindsey. Uh, we live together in the same house uh, there in Washington. This really started out as a, an experiment to see if we could live together and get along, as Diane and I are getting older, and, uh, you know, the processes and the issues relevant to that. And it really is working out. I, I tell people, I think this is going to work if Cameron will just do what he's told. <clears throat> Cameron tells people, yes, I think this is going to work out if Dad will just do what he's told. <laughs> so we're working on that. But it, it really is a, a good situation uh, for us, so we are there. Being a Christian in the world, after a public ministry... Um, we have prayed, and I really believe, be a of the Spirit to do some things to live our lives in a very different setting than this one. Uh, I attend the Gardner Community Center. We live in a little town, not even a town, a little village, a little settlement named Gardner, Washington. You can Google it and find it, Highway 101, Discovery Bay, out there in Washington, and uh, Uh, the Gardner Community Center is a community thing. I go to the board meetings, and I sit in, and I've made a number of friends in the Gardner Community Center board meetings, and um, they are very interesting. In our last board meeting, we spent 45 minutes discussing what to do about the mice in the attic of the building, and it was an in-depth discussion that uh, dealt with mice traps and all manner of important uh, issues that we had to deal with. I've also joined the Farm Bureau because I'm a farmer and um, so (laughs) go to the Farm Bureau meetings and the reason is two or threefold. One is just to participate in that particular sphere of activity but also to meet people and to be light and salt and to be a witness not in a platform situation, but sitting around with other uh, people who are not in public ministry. And it's really interesting. We've met so many people, and none of them know our background. It takes a little while uh, before people say, well, where are you from, and what do you do? And uh, I get to tell them about the past. But you know what? They're not really very interested in the past. They're not that they care a whole lot about anything we've done, anywhere we've been. You know, we've been to India, we lived in Moscow, we were in Minneapolis, and they go, ho-hum, how are your goats? I mean, you know, it's just, it's, they just, it's, it's just really interesting. <clears throat> but in all seriousness, Diana and I want to close out the last chapter of our lives being really good Christians in a non-public setting. Uh, to be a witness unto Christ, to be Spirit-filled, and to be able to live out what the vast majority of the church lives out throughout all of its history, and that is, you could call it marketplace or street level or barn level or auction level living as a Christian in the world. Washington is one of the most unchurched states in America. Seattle, one of the most unchurched cities. And uh, There is uh, just within a few miles of us a a community of people that are in the occult. They drink a hallucinogenic tea. They take uh, sojourns off to Peru where they sit in the jungle, drink tea, get high, and get enlightenment, and then come back to Washington to share the good news of their spiritual experiences. And what we do is we go to a chapel service and we clap our hands. We run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, shake. We thank God and we pray and then endeavor to find a way to tell people about the joy and the meaning and the depth of our spiritual experiences. My message to you this morning, I want to keep very, very simple and to the point, and that is everything I've learned in 50 years. And so, I'm going to have to, I'm to, have to really talk fast <laughs> to get through all of this. But to condense uh, uh, just a lot of background and experience into a couple of key points that really, I hope, would stick in your heart and in your mind. Uh, I prepared a whole bunch of slides, and we're going to put up, I think, just two, but let's put up the Proverbs 4.23 slide if we can. And uh, I want you to look at this and read it with me. I would say it's a, it's a great key to life, spirituality. Uh, Watch over your heart with all diligence. From it flows the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. This is a very interesting passage. Guard your heart. You do that. That's our responsibility. Guard our heart. Out of our heart come the issues of life, and then guard your mouth. Guard your heart and guard your mouth. And uh, let's put up Ephesians 5.27. It's part of a larger, but look at verse 25 there. This has to do with relationships. But husbands, love your wives. But look at this part. Just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. He loved the church, and he gave himself up. He gave up his divinity. He gave up his kingship. He gave up his role as creator of the heavens and the earth. He gave all that up out of love for the church. Guard your heart, watch your mouth, and love the church. Okay, now there's a three-point sermon in there somewhere. Guard your heart, watch your mouth, and love the church. The um, in our fifty years of ministry, there has been a, I would say, a lifelong. I uh, wouldn't. Yeah, maybe struggle would be the word. Maybe challenge. Maybe issue. But how do you live? for 72 years how do you live in public ministry for 50 years and how do you maintain a spiritual sensitivity how do you remain simple and spiritual instead of crusty and professional how do you go from how do you go from how do you avoid going from prophetic to simply pathetic And it is a challenge. It's a challenge. In the last number of years, well, it's always been the case, but in the last number of years, there's been a good deal of, of uh, reflection and introspection and inspection of the church. And a lot of it has been negative, frankly. I remember looking through a Charisma magazine a few years ago, and there were a number of conferences that were being advertised in a number of books uh, that had been published. And as I looked through it, I got mad, and then I got discouraged, and then I kind of got upset because so many of these things boiled down to this. Come to this conference, uh, and everything that is wrong with the church will be explained, and all of the right answers will be given by this speaker or that. And then the books that came out and um, if I were to name Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Steve Chalke, Mark Driscoll, Ryan Meeks, and many, many others, and depending on what you may know about recent developments in the emerging church and the emergent church and things like this, a good deal of criticism about the church, irrelevant, out of touch, out of date, judgmental, unloving, uncaring, etc., 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 etc. The problem with that is that Jesus loves this church. <laughs> he gave up His divinity for this church, and it is His one and only plan for the salvation of earth. Now, now God and I have a very… we have a good relationship. I, I know it's a good relationship, and it's a very open relationship. And in response to that whole thing of God making the church his plan A for the salvation of the planet, I want to say it seems like he must be some kind of a knucklehead to put that responsibility on a bunch of people like you and me. Couldn't he have come up with something better with all of his divine power? with all of his supernatural ability, with all of the power to create heaven and earth, couldn't he do something better than pick me or Scott Hagen or just go down the row, pick all of us and say, you're it and there's no other plan. And if you read Charisma Magazine, you'll find out everything that's wrong with you and why you're doing it all wrong and can't get it right. It just, it's just, it's mind blowing, it's mind boggling. My problem is that I am perfectly trained and suited for criticism of the church. I am perfectly trained for it. First of all, I'm a Ph.D., which means I know everything. (laughs) It's the way it works, okay? Somebody said a Ph.D. means piled higher and deeper. So... <clears throat> or that you know more and more about less and less, till finally you know everything about nothing. <clears throat> there was a time that in my PhD dissertation, that um, I was probably among a handful of maybe ten scholars in the whole world who knew more about the uh, treatment of Christianity under Roman law uh, than uh, and particularly the legal dynamics of the trials of the Christians, <clears throat> I was an expert, because it was such a, a detailed, minuscule point of focus that I could know a lot about it. Okay? So, uh, the, then I'm a professor, And a professor gives you the right to spout your opinion about everything you know to anyone you can get to listen, okay? (laughs) So between knowing everything and having the opportunity to spout my opinions and then being able to identify in every single church service that I ever attend everything that's wrong, from the lyrics of the music that are not theologically spot on, or they're off on the Calvinistic bent and everybody knows that that's wrong or they don't even get the grammar right. They don't know how to use the date even accusative case when they put the words up on the screen, and that just irritates the fire out of me. (laughs) And having studied philosophy and taught philosophy, philosophy is an art form, by the way, where you talk about things that you yourself do not understand, but you do it in ways to make other people feel stupid. And I spent years here in the classroom. It was so much fun every single day to have students just go, "Wow!" You know, so being a philosopher and logic and logical fallacies and begging the question and uh, all of that. My wife and I grew up in a church where they had a major financial scandal. Uh, the pastor was found guilty of uh, ten or so counts of felony fraud uh, sentenced to ten years in prison. The sentence was stayed, so he didn't go to prison and thousands of people lost the entirety of their life savings in a debenture bond program. When they paid it out, people got back ten cents on the dollar. My brother was a vice president in that organization and could have gone to prison if he was ever prosecuted because all the uh, administrators in that organization were using corporate funds for private business practices and building houses, and they paid back the money, okay, they paid back the money, but in case you don't know, where's Oscar? In case these people don't know, we're not supposed to be using corporate funds for private expenditure. Have you got them straightened out on that here? And so, this was a very large church, and from that place, Diane and I went out to the northeast corner of Colorado to pastor a church twice the size of the town it was in. Twenty people in town, (laughs) forty people in church. And you talk about my dad was on that board, my father-in-law was on that board, and all of that scandal. You talk about between a PhD and that church background, bitter, angry, tell everybody who'd care to listen everything that's wrong with the church. And Diane and I learned something 50 years ago. Guard your heart, guard your mouth, or it'll ruin your life. Guard your heart and guard your mouth, or it will ruin your life. Is the church imperfect? Look to your right, look to your left, then answer the question. (laughs) Don't look up here, because I am perfect. Besides knowing everything, I am perfect. I've been entirely sanctified for about 10 years now. And humility is a real challenge with me, because I have so little to be humble about. <laughs> <laughs> so in this uh, sojourn of education and public ministry, learned some things, and I went through a period of time while right here at North Central where these issues were challenged greatly in my own life. One Sunday morning, I went to a church that will remain unnamed unless the district superintendent would like to talk with me privately, and I could tell you the church that I'm about to talk about. It is frankly the worst church in the world. (laughs) It's horrible. It was horrible. I went there to preach, and when I got there, they were between pastors. The people were all mad at one another. They were mad at the previous pastor. They were mad at the district. They were mad at me and they never even met me. I mean, they were an angry, upset bunch. Piano player was mad. Have you ever heard people play worship music when they're mad? It has a, it has a certain ring, ring old bat was over there pounding on that piano. And the people, Wouldn't sing; they they just had this posture. And I think if they had tried, I don't think they could have sung. They're just they're horrible. So I'm sitting on the platform that morning, and I'm saying to myself, "This is the worst church in the history of churches." What they ought to do? They ought to knock this building down. They ought to burn it with fire. They ought to plow it under the ground like they did Carthage. That is what they ought to do with this church. If they leave it standing to keep from embarrassing the assemblies of God they ought to put a sign out front first presbyterian we just we just we ought to distance ourselves as you know or first mormon something but it's awful it's awful <laughs> or what they ought to do they ought to put up a sign and say uh this morning, why don't you go to Joe's Bar, drink beer, and eat peanuts? That'll do less damage to you than attending one worship service at this church. So I'm thinking all of those thoughts, and I'm sitting there up on the platform, and I'm getting madder and more upset. And then I thought, you know what? This church, they they need to bring a pastor in here that is full of the Holy Spirit and fire and can preach. And he needs to tell these people about the greatness of God and the glories of sin forgiven and the hope of heaven to come and the power of the Holy Spirit and raise this church from the dead. That's what they need. And I tell you, God spoke to me and said, yeah, well, what are you doing here this morning? Ouch. <laughs> and I said, oh, good grief. What am I doing here this morning? Now, look, <clears throat> I'm, I was saved, semi-sanctified, making progress in that area, gainfully employed, doing well at North Central, not living in any hidden sins, no scandals in my life. I've loved Jesus and preaching in the church and had a Bible. I, you know, just all the stuff you need. But when God asked me that question… I thought, what am I doing here this morning? I had prepared to preach a nice sermon to some nice Christians. I hadn't prepared to raise the dead. And while I'm sitting there, and this horrible worship service is going on, I'm thinking, how do you do it? How can it it even be done? Is there any hope for a situation like this? And if so, what is the answer? A sovereign move of God? Something that drops out of heaven, out of the blue, unexpected, unplanned? Uh, or is there something I can do that I should do? And if so, what is that? Preach louder? Spit more? Perspire more? Make them mad? Make them glad? Make them sad? Have an altar? I mean, you, you whip up an old-fashioned Pentecostal free-for-all and call that revival? What What am I supposed to do? The Lord said, well, you could change your attitude before you preach. And I said, well, that'd be a start. <clears throat> So, have you ever tried to pray through fast? It's kind of like trying to sleep fast. But I did. I prayed and I... I did. I mean, I just did everything I could. And I got up and I preached and it was poor. And they didn't respond. And I went home. But this experience was... It's a tremendous, challenging, eye-opener, provocative, condemning, convicting experience that I stood in the pulpit with an open Bible to deal with people who were in trouble and didn't know what to do. And it is that experience that started my study on revival, spiritual gifts, and, and whatnot that I have continued to this day. The next week, I went to another church, this one I will name is Marshall, Minnesota, and I have the good church, and I prayed better for that service, and I prepared better, and um, my attitude was better. Of course, they were easier to be with than the previous week, and so we had a good service, and uh, driving home from Marshall, Minnesota, there's a Land Lakes Dairy out there someplace on that highway, and as I got close to that, God spoke to me and said, Um, You did fair, Gordon, but you cheated those people. And I said, cheated, hmm? Cheated. I get up at 5 in the morning and drive 164 miles, I think it was, and uh, I was prepared, and I did the best, and, and I cheated. But I pulled in behind that dairy with my Bible, and I sat there for a long time. What was God trying to say to me? And God dealt with me about the price of spiritual life, about the price of effective prophetic preaching about the reality of be pouring out the spirit instead of pouring out a few years of learned tradition hello god spoke to me and out of that i developed some habits and patterns of spiritual life that were new from my previous life. It was a time of growth and development. Do you know that growth is sometimes painful? <laughs> sometimes hurt. But one of the things that God dealt with me and that uh, commanded me and showed me the effectiveness of doing it boiled down to this. In terms of, so what can a preacher do in the pulpit with a church that is struggling? What, you know, what can you do One of those points was that I should not preach to move people till the message has first moved me. Because one of the things with preaching is you can learn how to take it from your notes, through your head, out of your mouth, but it never goes through your heart and spirit. And those of you that are in preparation for public preaching ministry, you may have already encountered this, but surely someday you will encounter it. That the knowledge of theology, the knowledge of the Bible, the knowledge of the ability to preach, the ability to use words, to know your subject, to tell the stories at the right time the right way, to use the text in the right way, and to do all of that is absolutely important. But there's another thing, and it's never the preparation of the message that's the most important part, but it's the preparation of the messenger. And that's an entirely different thing. God, God, help me to learn a bit about something that it'll never move them if it doesn't move me. And to sit with an open Bible and notes that are prepared and know that I'm not the least bit ready to preach until it brings tears to my own eyes. And that I am so moved by the truth and the power of the Word and the Spirit that I break down in tears. Now I'm getting close to being ready to preach. One of my favorite people is I have two girlfriends sitting out here Desiree and Erin. <laughs> it's wonderful to have friends in the body of Christ. And Desiree and I go back to when she was a little girl in a restaurant down in what town was that? I forget, but in Indiana. And now she is being used of God. And Aaron from Illinois. But Aaron's a crybaby. I don't know if you know that by now. <clears throat> And we share that in common, you know, we, we cry. But to be moved by the truth of the Word, and to be prepared to share it, now yes, you do the theology, the exegesis, the hermeneutics, and the history, and you do all of that, but until it has gone through your spirit, that's the part of guarding your spirit. So, you can care for the church, so you can reach the world. So, I've practiced that with some degree of success through the years. And to sit in a hotel room like I did last night or any other place and go over the notes, but it's not the notes, it's the moving of the spirit through the heart. When we left here two years ago, I took All of my sermons are on paper. I don't trust electricity. I don't trust cell phones. And I mean, I got it right here. Now, it's also in the computer, but I don't bring the computer to the pulpit. I bring the paper. Is that a hint? (laughs) I think it is. Good. Um, No, I just lost my train of thought. I took all of the sermons that I had accumulated over 50 years of ministry, and in preparing to move, I threw every one of them away. It was a garbage can this big around, this tall, half full of paper. Every sermon I'd ever preached, with the exception of the revival series and the spiritual governance, spiritual gifts, I kept that material. Why? Well, first of all, I was never going to use those. I knew that. Secondly, I knew that if I did use them, it would be old bread for a different season that I should never preach. I can preach the topic, but not those same notes. Every sermon I've ever preached, just like the one here this morning, even, and people know that even during the service, I'm still writing. I'm still scratching out stuff and writing in stuff because to guard your heart so the Spirit of God can flow through it, even occurs while you're in the moment of preaching, if your heart is in tune with God. And so, it's been a wonderful journey. We threw away all those sermons, and uh, I said, if I ever preach again, it'll be fresh bread. Now, I know the theology, but it has to be a fresh message. It's fresh to me in this moment, this morning as it ever was 50 years ago, and for you. I will not do any more with the final illustration other than to tell you, you ought to read the Hebrides revival and the Scottish Presbyterian preacher Duncan Campbell. Two old women in their 80s, one blind the other crippled, began to pray that God would bring revival to the Hebrides. They asked Duncan Campbell three times, And finally, he agreed to go to the island of Lewis and to hold meetings. He went. He was preaching in a church, Gaelic Christianity, among many other things, was a combination of paganism, Roman Catholic uh, heretical doctrine, and uh, it, it, it was a mess. And he was preaching, totally unresponsive, dead, cold. The worst church in the history of the universe was there on the island of Lewis. Campbell and I have both been in the same church. He saw a young man sitting down in the congregation, a farm kid. The kid was crying during the service. The history books say the pool of tears around the farm boots of this farm kid, recently saved. Campbell asked the kid to pray. The kid stood up began to pray through tears, and revival broke out on the island of Lewis. I cannot explain to you, I do not understand everything that happened. Maybe what happened in that moment where people heard the prayer and they were there. But people walking the roads of the island, the spirit of God fell of them on them. They were not there, kneeling by the side of the road. People in milk barns toppled off the milk stool. Overcome. I can't explain all of that except maybe it's something like this. That if God's people will come to the point of tears over the working of the Spirit, Almighty God will do things that goes far beyond what you can accomplish in a Presbyterian church on that island. Somehow there's something supernaturally miraculous about the sovereign work of God in response to the tears of a young farm kid crying over his work boots. That's being like a little child. When I was here at North Central, we we had a thing, I don't know if it's still true, but the freshmen are really excited. The sophomores, they've got it all together. The juniors are starting to get tired, and the seniors are cynical. Does that still work here? Called senioritis, senioritis. At uh, 72 years of age, I'm a perfect candidate for senioritis. <laughs> I am a perfect candidate. I've already explained that to you, but let me tell you. I've got freshmanitis. I've got freshmanitis. And in my barn, with my goats and my heifers, Spirit of God is as rich as it is here this morning. And whether I'm preaching publicly or living a private life, I'm still a freshman, and I'm old, and what hair I've got is white. I don't dye it white for fashion. It just did it on its own, (laughs) falling out, but the Spirit of God is fresh, young people. And here in this building, there are young people. If you could guard your spirit, watch your mouth. Don't criticize the church. As you go along, you'll find out the things that are wrong. Jesus knows. It was His plan. Guard your heart and shut up. Do something about it. Pray till you cry. Go someplace and let the Spirit of God so flow through your life that in the island of Lewis or at Azusa Street or right here in Minneapolis or wherever God takes you, guard your heart, watch your mouth, reach the world, and be a freshman. the day you die amen let's pray dear god come holy spirit come holy spirit and keep us fresh like the ephesian church never to lose our first love never to grow up never to grow up never to become cynical and sophisticated but to be simple children of god till the day we die we pray in jesus name amen thank you for letting me be here with you